Comrades, welcome back to the Classic Camera Revival podcast, or should I say Communist Camera Revival podcast. As you've probably guessed by the title, today we are talking all things Soviet. Now, it's a subject that I'm not completely familiar with. I've used Russian cameras before. I shoot plenty of uh, Russian film stock, mainly Svema. So instead of me just trying to talk off the cuff about these cameras, I've brought in three excellent guests today starting off with Stephen Dowling from Cosmo Photo and then two friends from the Toronto Film Shooters meetup group Tony and Andrew so let's roll the credits welcome to the classic camera revival coming to you from the greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario Canada if you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now you most likely will by the end of the episode Hey folks, Alex Lokes here, Classic Camera Revival, and welcome to another episode. And today we have a very special guest. Um, well, actually, he's this is the second time he's been on our show. I'd like to welcome back Stephen Dowling of Cosmo Photo. He is really an amazing expert when it comes to Russian cameras and just what to look for, how to get started, and really their history. So the man who needs no introduction. Stephen, welcome back to CCR. Thank you very much for having me again. So, bring us, start us at the beginning. What attracted you to um, Russian cameras? So, uh, that's, that's quite, a, quite an interesting question. Um, so, when I was a kid, growing up in New Zealand in the 80s, um, I was really fascinated by the USSR. So obviously that was um, peak Cold War, where it was it was a closed society. Um, you know, my model aircraft collection had loads of MiGs and uh, you know the little toy tanks I built. I had loads of Russian ones as well. Um, so it was just a general sort of fascination with um, something that was sort of forbidden, I suppose. Um, and then. Uh, I would say in the year 2000, this was after I moved to the UK. Um, I was in my late twenties and I was just getting into um, film photography uh, and sort of teaching myself the basics because up, on, up until that point, I was just using autofocus SLRs um, and sticking them on um, auto settings. So I decided to um, really sort of teach myself photography from the ground up um, and this is obviously before digital took over, um, sort of consumer photography. Uh, and I remember buying some magazines, um, which included a, I think it was a, a witch camera, which is a sort of consumer report here in the UK. Uh, and they had a load of, um, Soviet era models that were, were still in 2000 a, uh, available to buy new. So things like, um, the Fed 5B rangefinder and the Kiev 60 medium format camera, which I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. Like I didn't realize the Soviet Union made cameras like this. And I just disappeared down a wormhole rabbit hole that I'm still in 20 years later um, because uh, the Soviet camera industry was the second biggest in the world during the Cold War, second only to Japan. So it was bigger than um, West Germany's and East Germany's combined. Um, and it's, 
it did a lot of uh, what what the Soviet industry at the time did, which was copy where it could, um, but also come up with its own innovations in order to, you know, meet a challenge or meet a directive. So uh, over the course of um, Soviet camera production, which really starts from about the 1930s up until the end of the Soviet Union, you can see these, these periods where they come up with some really innovative and inventive stuff, like really beautiful cameras that, um, much like the Soviet space program, for instance, actually came up with solutions before camera companies in the West did. Um, so it's it's a, a really fascinating, um, really fascinating thing to look into. The cameras are interesting. The lenses are really good. Um, here in the UK, there was an enormous amount of um, imports of Soviet cameras, certain models, certainly, um, during the Cold War. Um, and they were actually uh, taken apart and rebuilt here in the UK. Um, and they, so the, the sort of branded models that you, you get um, very easily here in the UK, uh, are actually like really well built because they've been essentially re-engineered here in the UK, rebuilt, and um, they're really reliable. So uh, I think part of it was that I had really good um, first experiences with Soviet cameras. So the first ones I bought were a, a Lomo LCA compact camera, Oh, nice. the, classic. Yeah, one of the original ones from the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, so I think it was built in 1986. Uh, so it has all um, Cyrillic lettering and it's Gost um, film settings rather than ISO. Uh, I got that and I got a, a Kiev 60 uh, medium format camera. Um, nice. And both of those cameras I still own and I still use. They're, they're really good. I, I was eyeing actually a Key F60 um, earlier this year during the uh, height of the pandemic. Yeah. But uh, thankfully, I wasn't able to find one from uh, uh, a North American source or and the ones that were in North America were way overpriced. Yeah, I think, I think it is easier um, to scratch that itch if you live in Europe. Um, it's certainly, the, you know, the further into central straight Eastern Europe you go, um, it, it, they're just easier to find because uh, a lot of the countries that were, were part of the Warsaw Pact area, um, you know, Hungary, Czech Republic, Romania, for instance, um, Poland, uh, these were the cameras that people used. So they were in all the shops, um, everyone had one. And even today you can, wander around flea markets and, um, and shops, uh, junk shops and, and what have you, and, and find these cameras for next to nothing. And sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but yeah, that's, that's stuff we can get into later because there, there is some, some definite do's and don'ts. So if someone was um, decided that they wanted to get started with um, Soviet cameras, what, what sort of models would you suggest that um, a person start start with 
Well, um, I suppose it, it, it depends on the, the, the type of uh, shooting they want to do. You know, if they're into uh, SLR photography, then um, I would suggest having a look at the Zenit uh, SLRs. Um, and I can, I can almost hear um, people recoiling in horror because Zenits are one of those cameras that um, have a certain reputation. But in 1965, um, KMZ, which is the, the sort of vast photographic works on the edge of Moscow, which made the Zenit and Zorki brands of cameras and, and loads of other sort of one-off designs, um, they came up with a, uh, a new SLR in 1965, um, which was the first of their cameras to have a light meter in it. Um, so it was a, a selenium meter on the front with a, a readout on the top plate, um, much like you know a lot of cameras had in the 50s and, and 60s, um, not so much in the 70s where it was heading into the, the um, viewfinder. Uh, so it's a um, quite chunky, heavy um, piece of pretty much um, you know, one solid block of aluminium that's just got bits carved out of it. Um, it's got a, a cloth shutter which um, has speeds from 130th up to 1500. Uh, the first few had a, a kind of proprietary mount that um, KMZ did uh, in the 50s and 60s, which is sort of sort of based on the Leica screen mount, but is is different, so you can't actually... Yeah, the thread pitch is different. Different. Yeah, so that, that's called M39, and you'll find like a relatively small family of Zenit cameras um, have that mount, so things mm. like the original Zenit, uh, the Zenit S, which um, it, in Cyrillic looks like Zenit C, um, the Crystal, uh, and the Zenit 3 and 3M, and that's pretty much it. Um, yeah. And those, those, a lot of the lenses that the Soviets then became quite famous for, um, things like the Helios 44, for instance, which is a... Everyone wants that one. Really, really good stepless aperture um, mm -hmm. prime lens, which is, is based off a, a sonar design. Um, so all that, a lot of those um, lenses actually came out first in M39, but um, I think after several thousand or maybe you know a few tens of thousands of of zenit east they actually changed the lens mount to the universal mount the m42 mount which yep. it obviously bears with everything from those pentax spotmatic to a vast amount of practicas to you know various other fujikas yashikas all sorts of cameras you know it was the the biggest um in terms of you know the, the amount of camera makers and and lens makers that made equipment for it it was oh yeah very varied and um usable mount um so so what you have is you have a, a camera that doesn't need batteries um it has a meter which uh, if the ca camera hasn't been um knocked about uh you know even today some of those selenium meters are still usable um, it doesn't have slow speeds, and that is uh, something that really, really is a sort of Achilles' heels, Achilles' heel with older cameras is 
those slow speed settings are often the things that, that break or get clogged up. Um, when you have cameras that sort of do away with those slow speeds, you, you're, you're less likely to have problems. It, even if you do have like a, a dragging shutter, a shutter that doesn't quite close um, so that it leaves light leaks or it leaves, you know, dark marks on the um, uh, edge of the pictures because the, the shutter hasn't um, moved across the frame properly. That, those things are really, really easy to fix by camera repairers. And, you know, if, if you're that way inclined... You can probably well. do it yourself. Relatively easy. I, I don't do it myself because I, I have a couple of people near to me who are really, really good at it and I, I like giving them the work. Oh, totally. Um, but yeah, it's we're not talking sort of ultra complicated West German um, over engineering like you might find it in Contacts or a Voigtlander. Great cameras, obviously, but... Um, These were the cameras for the people. Y- yeah, they were. So... The Zenit E is one of those cameras that was just built in bewildering quantities. I think in, in KMZ alone, they built 3 million Zenit E's over 17 years, but they were also making the same camera in MMZ, which is uh, another giant camera maker in Minsk, which is now t- today the capital of Belarus. So you had it was something like 8 million uh, of these cameras produced. And, and that was at a time where uh, Soviet camera production was, was pretty good, but stuff was made to work. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they left the factory with the, the wonderful little passports where, you know, it, they were hand signed by whoever was the foreman or, you know, the, Apparatchik in charge of logistics. So if, if you're lucky enough to find some of these cameras, which, which again, you know, still happens, you still see them on eBay a lot in the original box with yeah. the, the Russian language um, manual, you'll, you'll sometimes find these passports where, you know, there's these faded pen signatures. Really amazing. I've got, because I've been collecting this stuff for 20 years, I was able to get a lot of stuff you know, early on that was in its boxes for next to nothing um you know 20 30 pounds nice and this is uh very much not what you're paying now because there, yeah. there really has been a bit of an explosion in interest in soviet cameras i think but, i paid like 30 dollars for my zenit e yeah with a helios lens um the light meter doesn't work and definitely not in the box but it works yeah. brilliantly so, and that's the thing i mean if if you're okay with a meter not working um you know they're still very usable cameras it doesn't need a battery so you can just you know pop a film in it and and be shooting away and that that helios standard lens is i mean there's a reason why why the prices of those are going up they're they're a really really well built um well engineered lens that has just beautiful qualities and, um, you know, I'm not one of these people who's, who's going to claim that they're better than this Western lens of the time or that Western lens of the time. But um, there's certain, it's certainly a lot of lens for the, the price you pay for even now. Um, so that would be 
for me, a really good um, pick for a, a Soviet SLR to try. Now, obviously, there's a myriad of others, but the Zenit E is um, easy to find and not just sort of in former Warsaw Pact countries or in the UK. It was, it was sent all Everywhere. around the world. It was a um, you know, hard currency earner for the Soviet Union in the 60s, 70s. Um, so they were sent, you know, to Australia, sort of rebadged for, you know, photographic wholesalers or, um, you know, electrical chain stores or, you know, in, in Germany you had the Revue um, photo cha um, photography chain that, that had its own brand cameras. So they would rebadge, you know, cameras from Chinon or Kusina or, you know, from the Soviet Union. So like they're all over the place. They're, I always, um, I always say that if you walk into a, a, a flea market or a, a junk shop anywhere in Europe and there's not a Zena E there, then there must be something wrong with the universe. <laughs> it's one of those universal laws like, like gravity. Um, so that's, a, that's, you know, if you wanted to try a, um, a Soviet SLR, I would plump for that because it's um, cheap and cheerful. My next um, sort of related pick uh, also for a, a Zena SLR is a 12XP. Um, which dates 12XP? 12XP. So that dates from the early 80s. Um, it's essentially a Zenit E that takes away the selenium meter and replaces it with a battery-operated meter um, where the readout is viewable in, in the viewfinder, like, you know, cameras, uh, Western cameras started getting in the late 60s. And this, the Soviet Union sort of eventually got around to this in the, in the early 1980s with, with varying um, degrees of success. But uh, it's, a, again, a big, chunky, um, chunky Soviet SLR with a cloth shutter. It's exactly the same internal construction as the Zenit E, pretty much. Um, same speeds, um, pretty much the same uh, GOST settings or ASA settings but they're just total tanks and they run and run and run. I picked up one um, in a, a really good camera shop up in Leeds in the north of England. It's called West Yorkshire Cameras. Uh, and it, I think it cost me 30 quid or something with, with a Helios lens. Um, oh, that's not bad. That's only and, like 60 uh, bucks Canadian. Yeah, millions of them were made, or, you know, 2 million or something. Um, a, a related model is the TTL. Um, which, as, as you can probably guess, has a TTL meter through right. the lens. Um, it's a bit smaller than the 12XP. Um, I've had a couple of those. I, I gave one away to a friend of mine um, who was getting back into film photography. Uh, and then I, you know, a couple of months ago, I saw another one on eBay being sold quite near to me for 10 quid. So you, you can guess what that. Uh, and it works perfectly. Um, it's one of those things that the, the guy actually biked over from uh, where he lived in London to drop it off rather than put it in the post. And nice. uh, he, uh, he said it, it works perfectly. Look, he said the, the self timer button has, um, has fallen off, but I was like, well, I don't know. 
I never use that anyway. So, and, and I put some batteries in it. I check the meter against my Nikon F100 meter, and it it's good enough to shoot slime film on. So, awesome. It's yeah, you know, it, and this is the thing that um, if if you are interested in um, getting into film photography, uh, you know, there's certain costs with it. Film is, you know, it's not ghastly expensive, but it's no longer as as cheap as it was for many people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in the interests of, you know, film photography not becoming a, a middle-class pursuit, then I, I'm all for just sort of cheering on some of the cheaper ways of getting into it. Yeah. Save money where you can. Save money where you can. And uh, so that's, those are the, the sort of easily, um, easily uh, findable um, SLRs I'd suggest. If, if you want to, if you want to buy a, a range finder, um, the Soviets made a, a dizzying amount of rangefinders um, in the post-war period. Uh, so you can argue that the sort of the industrial Soviet photography um, uh, complex started in the 1930s um, in Kharkiv, in what is now Ukraine, um, with a, a, a bureau, design bureau called FED, um, and so they, like a, a few other companies at the time, copied the light, various Leica rangefinders. Um, obviously, Leica, 10 years or so before, had been the first um, camera maker to, or lights, sorry, had been the first camera maker to make a, a camera that could use 35 millimeter cinema film, which had existed for some time, but hadn't been used for stills photography. And that obviously miniaturized camera technology to the point where, you know, you could pop it in a, in a coat pocket and go about your day taking photos instead of lugging about one of these giant mahogany and brass monstrosities or, you know, big folding cameras or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, various Soviet companies made, you know, like a copies of variable quality. Um, some of those early fed uh, rangefinders from the 1930s are very, very good. What you then find um, in the 50s is that production really stopped, um, stepped up. And there's a very um, easy to find camera called the Fed 2. Uh, essentially, I suppose you could equate it to a, a like a 3G or a 3F, um, but it doesn't have the really, really annoying um, like a bottom loading. Um, it does have a, a sort of non-standard back. It's not a hinged back like you, you would find in a Zena E or you know any modern SLR, um, but it's basically got a couple of keys that you turn at the bottom and then you slide um, the back of the camera off. Ah, so like a um, like an early Nikon F, the Nikon rangefinders, yeah. and the and the contacts rangefinders. So contacts, yeah, yeah, very like that. Um, but it's it, other than that, it's pretty standard um, film loading. 
the good thing with the Fed too is um, they're really well made. Um, they they haven't got um, too much in the way of mechanics to get uh, gunked up, but they've got enough to make them flexible. They're a really good street shooting camera. They've got a really really wide rangefinder base, which makes their focusing much more accurate. Um, and I think nearly 2 million of them were made. So this is not a hard camera to find. And um, again, like the Zenits and the, the Zorky rangefinders made by KMZ, cloth shutters that are relatively simple to, to repair. Um, so, you know, the Fed 2, for me, is probably the most usable um, Soviet rangefinder to start with. It, it doesn't have a meter, but um, it, it has a cold shoe, so you can pop, uh, you know, one of the new um, hot shoe meters that uh, are being made at the moment, or just mm -hmm. use a, a um, accessory meter like I do. And the more you do that, then the more you sort of get to yeah. get light. Like anyway, it's it's always a good yeah. thing. Um, I so I'd stuck my Fed two, which I bought about 2003, I think, um, in the back of the cupboard. I hadn't shot with it in 15 years uh, because I, I just have so many cameras and, you know, it's like you sort of get fixated on using one for six months. Oh, yeah. Um, and I picked it up uh, and it's in really beautiful condition. And I just was like, well, it's just a really nice camera to hold and it's working perfectly. Like I tried all the speeds and it was working without a squeak um i put four or five rolls through it over the summer and they're they're perfect nice so, um it's it's nice to know that these things will just sort of quietly wait for you to like get back into the groove um this, the same thing happened with my key of 60 which i'll get onto um uh in a little bit uh so the other major um rangefinder brand um apart from fed was zorky um, Zorky was made by the same people who made the Zenit SLRs, KMZ, Krasnogorsk Mechanski Zavod. Um, I think my Russian's terrible. You're probably going to get a message from um, Vlad Kern. I don't think we. Uh, I don't think we have many uh, Russian listeners. <laughs> well, uh, apologies for mangling your beautiful language. <laughs> we, we tend to mangle most languages. Um, so, yeah, the, the Zorki um, rangefinder family is um, fairly similar to Fed. Um, sort of the earlier cameras tend to be uh, more likely to work because the... the level of workmanship and the quality control was um was pretty good but uh i wouldn't discount any any particular model it's just you know go through the checklist um but a particular favorite of mine um to start with is a, a zorki 6 which is from the late 50s into the early 60s um and this is really usable especially if you're coming from uh, you know, SLRs and stuff because it, it does away with all the sort of weird quirks of um, 
Cold War rangefinders, like bottom loading and um, having to cut the film. It's essentially um, the the camera that a lot of uh, early Zenits were built from. So um, it's got a hinged back, and you just slot the film and feed it into the take-up spool. So it's it's shooting-wise very similar in feel to an SLR. Um, not as wide a rangefinder base as the the Fed, but still pretty good. Um, just a, a nice camera to use. Again, doesn't bother with um, slow speeds. So for me, it's just a, a real street shooting camera. I took mine, um, which is, is at the moment just waiting on getting the uh, shutter curtains retention just because they're dragging a bit. But I took mine to Sri Lanka and Albania on holiday uh, a few years ago and just was like blown away by how how nice the shots were now now partly was that was because i was shooting some some nice lenses obviously but like it's a nice robust um reliable camera it just sort of does what it needs to do without any bells and whistles awesome. so yeah that would be my pick um again not a not a um a hard camera to find it. It wasn't made in the sort of bewildering quantities of some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you want to find something that like really is easy to find, um, I, oddly enough, the Zorki Six was made before the Zorki Four. Um, <laughs> Zorki Four. Uh, there's a great book um, uh, written by a French author, uh, Jean-Luc Princel, um and he described the Zorki 4 as the 800-pound gorilla of Soviet uh, rangefinders because they were just churned out in the yeah. thousands over like 20 years or something. Um, and uh, again, they're one of those cameras you just see everywhere. Um, they, they have a reputation for being a little cruder than um, the, the earlier stuff where there was maybe a bit more refinement going on. But they're still... Like, really really good picture taking tools um the four was followed by the 4k which has a um like the zorki six has a traditional lever wind for um winding the film right again it's just one of those things that makes it easier to shoot with um compared to a lot of rangefinders of the period where it's a, a totally different set of movements that you have to get used to yeah I know I run into that. It's why I don't shoot my uh, my contact three A much because again yeah, I'm so used yeah. to having that Lieber wine to do the twist. Exactly. So I, I always say to say to people if you're you know a real fan of SLRs but you want to try um, rangefinders, maybe f- start with a model where you know you're you're not throwing yourself in the deep end in the sense of like everything about using that camera just feels weird because it doesn't remind you of um, what the SLR does. So yeah. the Zorki 6 and the, and the 4K um, are very good for just sort of easing you into it. The Fed 2 doesn't have a lever wind, it has a knob. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's not too bad. Um, you know, maybe start with a Zorki 6 if you can find one or a, a Zorki 4K and then and sort of ease yourself in that way. Um, but, you know, like I said, not hard cameras to find. Uh, and just like the Zenit, the stuff that does go wrong with them is 
it's pretty easy to um, to fix. You know, it, even if the sort of rangefinder rangefinders are out of alignment, the cameras are designed so that you can take the top apart and do that yourself really easily. Uh, which isn't isn't the same that can be said for things like the contacts or um, you know some of the other like Voigtlander rangefinders, oh, yeah. which are in the arts. Great camera. Okay. Um, now, so that, someone wanted to go medium format. Well, uh, so the 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 amount of um, models to choose from does definitely shrink when we when we talk about one twenty. There there wasn't the same um, class of photographer that you would find in the West. Um, you know, the kind of people who were buying the roll flexes or the Hasselblad 500s or, you know, the various Japanese um, medium format cameras of the time, you know, the sort of dentist, lawyer, um, you know, professional who could afford to splash out on something a bit more expensive. Um, but the two models that I would definitely recommend, um, probably the cheapest way to get into uh, medium format and be using a, a, a camera that takes decent images is the Lubitel family. Um, so the Lubitel are essentially uh, a Lomo copy of the Voigtlander Brilliant camera from the 1930s. And just um, over the years from the 1940s, I think the first copy came out camera called the Comsomolets. Um, Lubitel is a, a Russian word which sort of roughly translates as um, amateur or enthusiast. And so these were plastic uh, TLR cameras um, that have a pretty narrow set of apertures and shut shutter speeds. So your, your fastest shutter speed is 250, uh, one 250th, sorry. And the lens only really opens up to f4.5. So, you know, this isn't um, going to be a Roloflex 2.8. But the lens, even though the lens in it is a triplet lens, which means it only has three elements, it's a glass lens. Um, and it's a particularly good triplet lens. Uh, it, it's essentially the same same lens as Lomo made for its uh, Smyrna range of compact cameras. And they're really good. Like you can get surprisingly sharp um, saturated images from, from essentially a three element lens. Um, I've been really, really pleasantly surprised at some of the pictures I've got using a Lubitel. Um, mm. I took one to a wedding. Um, uh, a couple of years ago and just got some really beautiful pictures on the slide that I was like, I, I kind of forgot I was walking around with a 25 pound camera. Um, the Lubitels are still being made to this day um, because uh, Lomography, which was the company, the Austrian company that sort of brought a new audience to Soviet cameras and, and restarted production of the, the Lomo LCA. They also restarted production of the Lubitel, um, which had been into product, uh, had been 
in production until about 1992, I think. And then in the, the late 2000s, they started up um, the, the factory presses again. I, th I think they're now being made in China. But that's essentially a, a 1930s camera that's just being consistently, um, you know, tweaked and updated. Um, the, the good things about the Louvertel are not only does it have a really nice lens, um, it's just such, so easy to use. It's the easiest medium format camera to load out of anything I've ever used. I completely agree with that. My first... Um, my first um, experience with medium format was with a Lubatel too. I picked up for like twenty bucks at an antique show. Yeah, yeah. They're just they're a cinch to use. Um, obviously, they don't have a meter. So again, like the the, the Soviet rangefinders I mentioned, you're you're using a um, an accessory finder. Um, they're just they're light you can you can take them anywhere in a, a backpack or a, a day bag um it, it's it's really hard to screw up shooting on a on a Louboutin. you know they do have a, a a reputation i think unfairly for being um you know having light leaks and what have you but I, i've encountered that once with Louboutins, and i've used a bunch of them. I just got sent one the other day that, that does have some issues with it. Um, a reader of the site sort of sent one as a you know, possible gift to give away. Um, unfortunately, it's got some, some issues with the, the interplay between the taking lens and the, um, the viewing lens. So I, I probably won't use that one, but um, most of the ones I've, I've found, you know, I've bought, bought them for friends who've got into you know, wanted to try medium format photography. And they're the kind of thing that you just, you know, you can, you're spending like 20 or 30 quid to buy one, sometimes even less if you're lucky. And, you know, that's not much more than the cost of, you know, slide film and, and medium format these days. So it's a really affordable, um, affordable way to try 120. Uh, the other, you know, literally the 800-pound gorilla of Soviet medium format photography is the, the Kiev 60, um, which is, I guess, the Soviet equivalent of the Pentax 6.7. It's a big, chunky 6x6 SLR. Uh, it's got a TTL um, finder, uh, prism finder, or you can use a, a waist level finder like a, like you would with a, a TLR. Um, it has the most exceptional lenses. Um, it, it has the same lens mount as the Pentacon 6, which is a, a really good East German um, family of cameras from the 1950s up to the 1980s. So the, the lenses from the Pentagon 6 are interchangeable with the, the Kiev 60. Uh, those lenses, the, the Pentagon lenses, were made by the original Carl Zeiss factory in, outside Dresden in Jena. Uh, they are really, really good. But you know what? The Kiev lenses aren't far behind them. Um, I, I, as a photographer, I haven't done a lot of 
professional work. But the two shoots that I, I did for record companies, back in the day I was a music journalist, um, were both taken on the key of 60. Nice. Um, and those, you know, those pictures were used all around the world in magazines and what have you. So uh, it goes to show how good the, the Kiev and, and Pentagon lenses, yeah. uh, six lenses are. Yeah. Um, it's uh, a real chunky camera. It's a bit like weight wise, if you were walking around with the Nikon F5 with the full battery pack. Okay. Um, so it's, you know, it's a good, good couple of pounds. Um, one and a half kilos, I think, with a with a prism and a. Oh, that's not too bad. Yeah, with a prism and a lens. Um, more. I, mean, I lug around a flintlock musket. Well, exactly. So you know, you'll be you'll be used to much more than that. Um, so the, <clears throat> there were certain issues that um, Kiev sixties had, uh, which included um, light leaks coming from a really, really, really bad um, design flaw in the lens, which allowed light to come in through the stop down um, a depth of field lever, um, which is not great. And also the, the particular paint that they used on the inside of the camera tended to reflect light, even though it was black. So you had a, a, a combination of two really bad things together. Um, the good thing is that a lot of the Kiev 60s, um, since they were new, have have been um, repaired or looked at. It's rare to find ones that are, you know, still in the box from you know the 1970s or what have you. Uh, in 2001, when I bought mine, um, I actually bought it from a guy in Holland who sadly no longer um, runs this business, but a bit like um, what this company, uh, technical and optical enterprises in, um, in the UK did with a load of Soviet cameras in the seventies. He took Kiev sixties and he basically took them apart. He fixed the frame spacing problem. He fixed the issue with the lens. He repainted the interior. Uh, he made sure the prisms were calibra calibrated properly so that you could shoot slide film without having to do some, you know, bracketing. Um, so the, these things just worked amazingly well out of the box. And he, it, he did such a good job that um, I think the last time I used my key of 60 was, well, this particular key of 60 was 10 years ago. Uh, and I just had been using other cameras and I decided to shoot it again last year and then a lot more this year. And that camera, which had been sitting in a cupboard for 10 years, like works perfectly, like the meter still is good enough to shoot slide, slide film with, um, no frame spacing errors, no light leaks, no lazy shutter. It's just absolutely fantastic. Um, a bit like the Pentax 6.7, it's a bit touch and go whether you have camera shake if you've got um, uh, speeds lower, slower than 1 30th of a second just because the, the mirror shake is quite considerable. 
But what you'll find now is a couple of very enterprising companies have, have basically done what uh, Hans Roskin did in the early 2000s. And they've bought up a not inconsiderable amount of um, Kiev 60 cameras and Kiev uh, 88 cameras, which were Kiev's equivalent to the Hasselblad. Hasselblad yeah. Um, so what they, what they did was the, when uh, Arsenal, which was the factory that made Kiev cameras, when they closed down in the 2000s, they still had thousands of these cameras sitting in boxes in their warehouse. So two companies, um, Harply, um, which I think is uh, based in Germany, um, but it's a sort of German-Ukrainian um, partnership. And another company in uh, Ukraine called Arax. These guys have basically done the same thing. They've essentially opened up new factories where they strip these old Kievs down and they completely rebuild them. Uh, and one of the things they do is they actually introduce a, a mirror lockup feature. So you, before you take the shot, the mirror locks up. So you're able to use um, uh, the cameras at much slower speeds, handheld and not get crazy camera shake. Um, so that makes them a lot more usable for um, landscapes and things like that. Um, I took a Kiev 60 on a trip around Cuba pretty soon after I bought it. And I was just blown away by how good the standard lens was and you know how lovely these images looked, especially slide. Um, and I've been shooting a lot with it on um, Cosmo Photo Mono, uh, 100 speed film over the summer nice. and on slide film as well. And it's just, uh, it's just a great camera. Um, and the, the standard lens, which used to be known, known as the Volna 3, and then is, is sort of the RSAT um, 80 2.8. It's just a, a really, really good lens. Um, you know, not really good for a Soviet lens, not really good for a Ukrainian lens, just really good. Um, I know a few people that I've introduced to Kiev cameras who just can't get over how good the standard lenses um, and you know the I think for a, an Arax um, kit which is one of these completely um, refurbished um, cameras with the lens and and the prism and everything it's $500 which is not a lot when you consider how much you're getting for that you know you're getting a essentially a brand new medium format camera with mirror lockup function and a lens and a TTL prism um, and a case and what have you. Um, one bad thing with the Kiev 60, it has the world's worst camera strap and it doesn't have traditional strap lugs, um, which is a real pain in the ass. So you, there's a, you have to be slightly careful when you're walking around with it on a strap that it doesn't fall off. Um, Having said that, I, I recently put a big fat um, Kaiser neoprene strap on it, and I haven't had it drop on my foot and because you would you would know about it if you dropped a Kiev sixty on your foot. You have to be <laughs> work, work, workman's boots for it not to be uh, not to be painful. 
And um, so, yeah, so uh, a massive two Cosmophoto thumbs up for the, the Kiev's. Nice. Um, nice. I would say t two other, again, I'm not going to go for any of the crazy, beautiful, rare to find cameras. Um, that camera, I, I, I said, is the first to sort of light the spark, the Lomo LCA. Uh, weirdly, um, the price of those has gone down in the last few years, um, rather than gone up, like everything else seems to have to. Um, so you can still get a sort of Soviet era Lomo LCA for about thirty-five pounds now, which is That's what, I, bad. which is half of what I paid twenty years ago from a shop. Um, admittedly, the the last one I bought did cost only 35 because it was from eBay, but it works. And, um, you know, so much has been written about the Lomo RCA. I'm not going to like go from the A to the Z, but, yeah. um, it's just a, a, a really great camera to sort of, um, reawaken your love of photography because it's just so, so much fun to use. Um, zone focus. So it's a real, you know, snap shooter um, works great with expired film because the lens is so contrasty uh, works great with cross-process slide um, its secret weapon is it will just keep the the shutter button uh, sorry keep the the shutter open as long as the shut shutter button is depressed so <laughs> if that's two hours it'll just keep it open for two hours wow. you'll probably drain the the batteries in the uh, in the process, but um, it's it's a, a pretty much fully automatic camera. You can override it uh, for certain apertures, but you you then only get one shutter speed. So it's best used in, in full auto mode. Um, the one I bought in 2000, that cost me, I think 70 or 75 quid. Still working fine, um, which I, you know, I think, says something about Soviet like construction when, when it does work, it, it yeah. just keeps going like, like a T-34 tank. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steven, um, I really hate to, uh, to uh, wrap this up, but you are just an absolute wealth of information. Thank you so much for, um, for coming back on our show. We will definitely um, make sure to have you back again. Um, it's, it's just been a delight. And um, for our listeners, if you go to our episode notes page, you'll find a fantastic video that Stephen just put out that will basically a, a great primer into uh, a Soviet camera. So Stephen, thank you very much again. That's uh, not a problem. And I'll, I'll just add that I'm, I'm actually um, in the process of writing something that will be going up on Cosmophoto fairly soon, which um, is a sort of a, a deep dive into the, the sort of do's and don'ts and, uh, you know, much, much of the stuff that we've covered, the cameras to look for and um, the stuff to be aware of. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll certainly drop you a line and make you aware of that so you can share it with your, your listeners. Absolutely. We will definitely have that posted on the Classic Camera Revival Facebook page. Have a wonderful, um, have a wonderful evening. Thank you very much. All right. Hey, folks, and welcome back. And 
In our second part of our episode today, we have someone a little more closer to home. And if you've been a longtime member of the Toronto Film Shooters Meetup, you know this gentleman right now. This is his first time on the Classic Camera Revival. Tony, welcome to the show. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. Now, um, you are a big fan of Russian cameras, but more importantly, you're a big fan of Russian films. So how did you come across these? Well, it's kind of funny, you know, you would, you would think that uh, having grown up in Eastern Europe, I would have some, uh, you know, 1980s nostalgia story about Soviet cameras and film. But uh, like so many other things in film photography, the trouble with uh, what is technically Ukrainian film now is uh, has started uh, at uh, Fairlawn, New Jersey, and started relatively recently uh, with me getting a sampler pack from FBP for uh, Christmas a couple of years back. And what happened uh, from there was a uh, start of experimentation with different Swema film, Tasma film, that uh, Mr. Rasso and his uh, crew was selling and still do sell. And that, yeah, that's uh, where like I, it usually happens. Yeah, that's where I started working with the Russian film with, through the FPP as well. Yeah, and um, it, was, uh, it was a very interesting journey, and uh, I have sampled them all, and I'm actually quite encouraged to see that it's uh, now uh, distributed uh, even more widely than, than it used to be a few years back, so that's, that's encouraging to see. Uh, but yeah, that's where it started two years ago. I got a sampler uh, pack and was basically completely unaware of uh, Schatzka factory history and, and, and the fact that it existed for uh, quite a few decades um, and ended up going out of business with that general implosion of Eastern European industry in, in mid-90s, uh, but got revived um, through Astrum that is uh, now... Uh, uh, you know the company that's manufacturing that uh, that film, uh, which is great. So uh, that's that's how it started and uh, meandered through um, from there. Mm-hmm. So um, again, you mentioned that uh, that um, Russian film was originally produced in what is now the Ukraine um, at the time, uh, the Soviet bloc, and uh, the Svema factory itself um, shut down in the 90s with the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, you've actually dealt directly with Asturum. What was your experience with that? Uh, I didn't, actually. No, that's, uh, I, okay. I tried and uh, didn't get too far. Uh, but what I did do is, uh, with FPP, FPP has had a period where they were not carrying a lot of uh, Asturum. Specifically, I was looking for FN64. And I took to eBay, and that's where I sort of dug out a couple of Ukrainian-based sellers that were selling actually fresh Astrum film. Um, and uh, I have to say that, that that was a very positive experience, especially considering that eBay purchasing, everybody has their fair share of horror stories. Um, and that was pretty much as good as a retail storefront, quick delivery, fresh film, film was well packaged. Uh, it didn't have any sort of challenges you'd expect with uh, shipments from uh, cr- halfway across the globe. So I have to say that I would definitely recommend um, eBay as one of the sources. Uh, but as I said, just as of 
last maybe six, eight months. We do have more options to get it locally uh, in, uh, in North America in particular. Yeah, the supply chains are uh, a little stretched uh, thin these days. I ordered some film from uh, Germany and it took a good two months for it to arrive here in North America. Oh, yes. Uh, I ordered a bulk roll from Hong Kong in May, and it arrived at the end of August. Yes. So break it down for us. What sort of um, old Svema films now made by Asturum are available today? And and which ones do you like? Which ones do you tend to avoid? So they have... They have a long list of film and a lot of it, uh, if, uh, you know, they haven't updated their website since 2013. So that's also a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a guess, uh, but they have a fairly comprehensive catalog. Uh, and by the looks of it, their, their most lucrative contracts are for aerial surveillance film. But what's available uh, for us hobbyists are uh, four main emulsions, uh, the three that, really closely match FOMA's standard lineup of 100, 200, and 400 um, ISO black and white film. And uh, one that is my hands down favorite, and it's a little bit unique to everything else that you can find elsewhere is uh, Svema FN64. So those are the four emulsions that are available and generally carried by places like FPP, uh, Freestyle, and uh, Downtown Cameron in in Canada. Um, And then, of course, you have a lot of specialty emulsions, but probably most familiar and and interesting one was uh, Mikrat uh, microfilm emulsion that uh, Eric uh, and Vanya from um, All Through the Lens podcast were... uh, selling just recently in limited edition. Yeah. But yeah, back to back to what's available right now and what does the mainstream is 100, 200, 400, and then FN64. Okay. So, so since I started with sampler pack, I would say that, uh, you know, if you research a little bit of a history of uh, Svema and then Astrum, uh, one of the, the big reasons why, uh, what Svema ended up shutting down in 95 was the opening of competition. And I would say that that makes a lot of sense when you look at their 100 and 400 line in particular. Those films are a little bit more grainy and grungy than what you would see in competitive products, whether that is uh, FOMA or Ilford uh, or Kodak even. And, um, 400 in particular for me was a little bit of a pain to deal with. It's it's too grainy for my taste. Uh, it was a little bit unpredictable in terms of results from different developers. Uh, most definitely, unless you want like a snowstorm, I would stay away from Rodinol or Rodinol variants uh, with a 400. Oh, I totally noticed that. Even Stan developing the 100 speed, the uh, 400 speed film in Rodinol, it was just a, a grain fest it was it was nasty oh yeah i was um, because we were having this conversation i actually took to doing some uh photo prints last night off of this and they i had do have a role that i stand developed uh, of 400 and it, 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 it just ugly mm-hmm. you know i i don't know you have to be a really uh yeah. big fan of uh low fidelity images to to sort of uh 
mm-hmm. like it. But uh, but one thing I will say though, um, even though I feel like 100 is nothing too special, there is a there's a nice grungy fine grain quality to 100 if you develop it in Tmax or DDX. Okay. So so I I have you know if you're into you know post industrial industrial uh, you know a little bit grungy but not too, too much 100 is a good candidate but you do want to develop it in something a little bit more modern and uh, uh, tuned to uh, T grain films uh, mm. so I had really nice sort of street scene results from 100 developed in Ilfotech DDX nice. Uh, but in general, I would, my experience with 100 and 400 was sort of middle of the road. Uh, it's, I, I would say when in doubt, I, I think that FOMA, FOMA pan 100 and 400 are superior to the two. Mm-hmm. So you would get sort of results in the same ballpark with more consistency and, and better quality overall. Where things get interesting with Astrum Swema is 200 and FN64. Um, I think that, you know, what I, what I really like about both those is their tonality is very unique. Um, and uh, the quality of, you know, contrast and tonality is really unparalleled, especially with when it comes to FN64. And, you know, we've, we've talked about this before in some of our walks. FN64 does have a very interesting smooth tonal range with a grungy grain and, and, and just enough of the contrast uh, that makes it a very unique look. And it is my go-to film for railroad photography now. Mm. Um, I've even gone through a batch of uh, mid-90s expired FN64 just recently and developed it in D76 OnePlus One, so basic plain Jane vanilla developer setup. Uh, and got really, really pleasing results. I mean, grain is noticeable as it would be with a, an expired film that has been expired for well over 20 years. Uh, I did expose it for for uh, 50 uh, exposure index, but got really nice results and, and really happy about it. it. It's kind of interesting to get a good grain out of a low speed film um, and FN64 delivers, but without any change to the tonal range. Usually when you have film that's too expired as it gets too muddy or too contrasty. Uh, wasn't the case with FN64. The other FN64 story I have is uh, last year I got about five rolls of 120 that expired in 1993 or 94. Ooh. Um, and the challenge with those uh, was that the, the, the tape, the glue on the tape to the backing paper dried out. So I had to retape the the film, oh. uh, but that painful exercise was worth it because results were just spectacular. I, I exposed it at the box speed, um, and uh, it worked out really nicely. Gave me um, very easy, uh, very smooth, even gray tones. Um, but yeah, so so I would say that 100 and 400. I wouldn't say that there's anything special there. Um, of course, everyone has their own taste to it but 200 has a really good tonal range and it's it's kind of like Fomapan 200 it's a it's a forgotten film to a degree Fomapan 200 is is a different type of emulsion and you can see it 
um, it scans better. Uh, it uh, it is more smooth. Mm. Uh, Astrum's 200 is a little bit more crunchy, but not too much, uh, and has that same sort of tonal range that uh, Foma Pan 200 would have, with a little bit more grain and a little bit more contrast. Uh, but to me, the most favorite and and big discovery out of that. FPP sample pack was FN64 for sure. Oh, FN64 is a special kind of magic. And if you haven't done it, um, I recommend doing um, HC110 dilution H with uh, FN64. So that's a 1 to 63. Mm -hmm. And uh, just take the uh, dilution B time and double it. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll definitely, definitely give that a shot. I just started my first ever bottle of, well, it's L110. Yeah, same stuff. But it's same thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's the thing with Astrum, and um, you know, I, I'm really happy to see that it's actually available. I was just looking it up uh, at FPP Freestyle and on down in Downtown Camera. So it looks like that's being uh, coated and rolled and shipped as we speak. Nice. What was uh, what was your uh, your experience? Have you tried any of the uh, other than FN sixty four? I've I've run through one hundred, two hundred, and four hundred myself. Um, the only way I really liked four hundred is if I gave it a slight pull to three twenty, and then developed it in PyroCAD HD using the Rolly Retro four hundred S times, and that gave incredible tonality. Still a bit of grain, but mm -hmm. not as bad as even stand developing in Rodinol. Um, the only real issue I have with the uh, the 200 speed film, I love it. I have the same experience you did. It just makes the world look right, as Leslie is Leslie Lazenby loves to say. It's super thin. It is really <laughs> a pain in the neck to um, load onto those plastic reels. Well, I, I don't know. I, I think that is that that has been, and 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 you know, FPP has guys have talked about you. You guys have also talked about uh, these films. I have to say, even with my, you know, farmer's hands, I really did not have problems ever. And I think M went off at some point about Astrum film and loading it and, and everything. Um, I've never had trouble either bulk loading this film, which I do with FN64, um, or loading them onto Patterson reels, mm. um, or had any significant light piping issues, which is another, another common complaint. I mean, I, I have to say, um, and I'm trying to, to you know, not, not to be too disparaging of Eastern European industrial practices, but uh, the canisters that I have received uh, from the latest sort of generation of Astrum are, uh, are very flimsy. Um, and uh, that, that's one thing that I would definitely warn everyone around, uh, especially, if, uh, especially if you're uh, trying to do a Soviet camera and a Soviet film situation. Soviet cameras are anything but gentle to, uh, to film. Oh, yeah. So uh, one, one has to be very, very well-practiced and deliberate in terms of loading and, mm -hmm. and setting, setting a camera up. Um, also, but uh, I, I, that, that is really to say that there is nothing that you can't uh, 
surpass it's not a problem uh, it's just that you have to be a little bit more cautious the other the other thing that i noticed is that they cut for uh, uh they cut leaders for leica so they're, they're a little bit longer um uh, longer tongue setup and um, that actually can throw some of the 90s plastic fantastics off with their auto loading oh yeah uh, but uh, but other than that i i have to say I, i've gone through about 70 80 rolls all told of astrum film over the last maybe two years um haven't had so haven't had a problem uh in, with loading uh, at all now i have to say i'm using exclusively patterson reels and patterson mm-hmm. uh, su- uh, super tanks uh, so I can't speak for Yankee or uh, steel reel or anything like that, but yeah. no, no issues. Yeah. I, I find if I, I'm again, like you said, be very cautious, very deliberate. Um, I can get the, uh, the Svema 200 to load quite easily onto uh, Patterson reels, especially while I'm wearing um, nitrile gloves, just keeps the sweat down. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's just just being prepared for that. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I, I would say also one one thing to 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 note is that these are uh, by and large a little bit more traditional emulsions, so they will print way better than they will scan. Mm. So so one thing that I really like is if you get a print that you have really balanced through uh, contrast filters. Uh, it may be better to scan that print at about 240, 300 DPI as a, as a photo uh, rather than to go through negative scanning. Okay. I, I really never found any problem scanning um, the Svema film. Um, 200 and FN64 scanned beautifully um, in my... Yeah, it's the other two, the other two that, yeah. will, that will really, you'll see the difference. Yeah. They scan fine in a flatbed scanner. The place where I had problems was with my uh, Cool Scan Five. It doesn't really like that polyester base. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just a little too thin for uh, the uh, push pull and uh, getting that focus. Yeah, and I think to 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 be, you know, whenever you're dealing with someone who is predominantly manufacturing um, aerial surveillance film. Or surveillance film period, mm-hmm. um, e- even even um, JCH, you know, and, and uh, the uh, Agfa contract film, right? Yep. Uh, th- that's the base they have because most of most of what they're doing is big roll, big long rolls packed in a tight space. Um, so that's the, that's the, that's how they picked the base, and that's something that uh, we have to expect, right, uh, for their um, thirty-five millimeter cut. Um, because you know, usually there's there's a lot of noise around. Oh well, and yes, when you when you take uh, you know Ilford or or Kodak uh, black and white, what 35 millimeter it feels like cardboard in terms of thickness and rigidity compared oh, to yeah. these films. But there's uh, it's nothing other than there's really a clear um, clear reasoning in terms of what their main business is, which is aerial mm. surveillance. Yeah. Go with what you got. Yeah, exactly, and and the same same with uh, with Orwa or um, Filmatech, right? Yeah, it's it's a motion picture film, so the base is a little bit thinner mm-hmm. uh, than um, than you would expect from the others. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it's some some good film, uh, definitely. Uh, 
but uh, yeah, as you said, FN64 just has some special, it's, it's a unique film. If, if, uh, if I would say what's unique about Svema, it's FN64, hands down, everything else, you could probably find equivalent or slightly or more capable emulsions yeah. elsewhere. Just by FOMA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that I am definitely going to be putting in a order for FN64 from the FPP next time I need to order film from them because, yeah, you've really inspired me to uh, take it out more, really dig even deeper into it. Uh, Tony, thank you very much for um, sharing your experience with us today. And, Anytime, um, Alex. Hopefully we'll uh, be able to all get together again soon. Likewise. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Cheers. Hey there, folks. And in the uh, final part of today's episode, we have Andrew from the uh, Toronto Film Shooters uh, group. And if you've uh, attended an event, you've seen Andrew. Andrew is a fantastic photographer. And he has just recently jumped into the wonderful world of Russian camera. So welcome to Classic Camera Revival, Andrew. So what camera did you get? Well, I have here a brand spanking new Fed 2. Um, in poking around the internet, it appears to be a very late model. Um, there was more than one. And the earlier ones had what I believe is called scientific time, where the shutter is, you know, you know, 50, 100, you know, sort of, to me, weird numbers. This uses the uh, modern timing, the name of which escapes me. Um, but yeah, so I really wanted to try a rangefinder. Um, I've shot SLRs, you know, my, my whole life, really. Um, and there was a strange creature out there that I really wanted to try. And Leicas are really, really expensive. So it was sort of the fed or nothing, really. And uh, someone on the group was selling their fed. And I thought, hey, I'm sorely tempted by that. But... I don't need a new camera. Then he quoted me a very low price. I said, yes, I'll take that. And uh, now we have uh, a nice Fed in my hands. Um, I have to say, as cameras go, it's very charming. Um, I think my first thought when I picked it up was it was charming, robust, and surprisingly generous of tolerances, which I think is a Russian thing. <laughs> um, I have, so this is the late 60s. Um, I have a uh, another camera from the same vintage. I have a, a pre-Spotmatic uh, Pentax SV. So, and they're sort of the same materials. You know, they're the the, uh, the chromed brass and the sold metal. And so, it's sort of, it's my frame of reference for a '60s camera. Um, and I, I'd, I'd like to compare the build quality, but I can't. I think Pentax has it all over the Russians when it comes to making things. Um, I think I said the, the Pentax is a precision, a precision instrument and the Fed's a tool. <laughs> so too. So um, true. Blunt instrument. It is, but that does not detract from how pleasant it is to use. It just feels comfortable. Um, and it's, it feels like you can repair it yourself. Not that I've tried but it has that sort of primitiveness to it where it just keeps on working. Um, 
but yeah, it's very nice. It's easy in the hands. It feels just the right size. I don't have, I suppose I have middling size hands and it's comfortable to use. Um, you can really only get the one lens for it, I've learned, which is to say a 50. It hasn't got sight lines for any other kind of lens, which apparently is another Russian trait. Um, yeah, they, the, um, the M39 mount on the feds had a slightly different thread pitch. Mm -hmm. They did fix it eventually, but for the most part, all you need is one of the many 50 millimeter copies. Well, it did, it did come with an Indostar 61. Oh, solid lens. Yes. Um, from what I've read, very good reputation, good contrast. The one I have, the front element is scratched. Well, I scratched it. It is, it's seen a lot of the world um, in its life. Um, and perhaps it was a bit worse for wear for it. So I am thinking about replacing the lens with either another Indostar or a Jupiter 8. Um, Can't go wrong with the Jupiter. I was, by some coincidence, some uh, other people in the community have recently been reviewing Canon 50mm 1.4s, the LTM. Um, and I quite like the 50mm 1.4 FD, but it's mm. about a $300 lens, Canadian, and it's a Fed, so I'm not sure I want to spend so much yeah. money on a camera that will frankly never be part of my daily walk. Because, I, again, I, I think I do prefer SLRs in general. Um, but I'm certainly going to put this one to use because it's, uh, well, it's just fun. Um, maybe on our next, you know, when we're doing something street, when street photography happens again, you know, in some future time, um, I can see this camera, you know, being a lot of fun for that. Um, these days, though, you know, I'm more, I'm more hiking about, you know, quiet places where I won't bump into people if I can help it. And I don't think, uh, at least for me, a rangefinder is a hiking camera because I like changing lenses. I like, you know, doing odd things and, and using a tripod. Um, but no, I have to say, I certainly have enjoyed using this camera. I haven't put many rolls of film through it yet, um, but I've enjoyed using it. And I think that if anyone really wants to step into the world of rangefinders, um, you can't go wrong with a Fed. I mean, it's inexpensive. Uh, even a Voigtlander, which is, I know from reputation, is still a good couple hundred dollars. You know, I think even higher, you know, six, seven hundred dollars for a Voigtlander. When if you don't know you're going to like a rangefinder in the first place, it's probably a bit of a commitment. Absolutely. So uh, what sort of film have you uh, run through it? Well, I am a, a pretty devout Triax user, so I've only had Triax through it. Okay. Because, um, you know, it's, it's flexible, and if I mess up the exposure, Triax doesn't really mind most of the time. Nice, nice. Um, and uh, how are you uh, metering? Because again, the Fed Two doesn't have a meter, so. Um, my metering is. Uh, I usually, I'm I'm not good at the Sunny Sixteen thing yet, and I that's a practice point I I really want to improve on. So I've largely been using a light meter app on my phone, and um. It's been inconsistent, which isn't the camera's fault. It's my fault. Um, I keep opening up the light meter on the app on my phone, and it has the wrong ISO, which mm. is a, it's an app problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
but again, it's just practice, you know. Um, and I suppose it's what with winter, I won't be putting a slower film in it anytime soon. Uh, so it's going to live off Trix, I think, until at least the spring, when we can start going with uh, nice longer days, friendlier daylight hours, and uh, slower speeds. Nice. What else can I say about this camera? It does have the diopter attachment. So if you're a glasses wearer, it has a built-in one. Um, in fact, that is the source of my only complaint with the camera. The little lever for controlling the diopter is loose, at least on my one. So I'm, oh, always, okay. I'm always hitting it and having to adjust it so I can focus. I might cover it in tape or something. Um, but really, that's, that's it. I mean, for... Uh, what, 50-year-old? A 50-year-old camera, that's a pretty short list of complaints I have for it. You know, yeah, given not bad. Given what it is yeah. and uh, what I can expect out of it, that's sort of it. Yeah, the adopter lever is functional, but a bit loose. Yeah, well, again, it's a, it's a Fed. You should be able to fix that yourself. Or just tape it down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The camera won't know the difference. The viewer won't know of the photographs it take, how much tape was involved in the pictures. Exactly, and as long as that, um, as long as the uh, rangefinder patch is uh, good and contrasty, even with the uh, diopter out of focus, you should still be able to line it up. Yeah, and it has. Uh, well, again, I've having never used one before of any kind. I don't know, you know, if Leica has a particularly phenomenal rangefinder patch, but the Fed's one, at least in my model, is quite nice and easy to use. So again, and just it's, uh, remind me, the Fed 2 just has a single um, single view rangefinder, right? Yes, it's a sing It's the. Uh, it's not like the old threes that had the composing and the and the uh, the focusing one. It's it's my understanding that the the Fed is essentially a, they ripped off the Leica 2, but did make some fundamental design improvements. Absolutely. Which, of course, one of them being, of course, is having the focus window also being the composition window. Yeah, that was my biggest complaint with the uh, Leica 3 was the fact that it was two separate windows and the rangefinder window was super small and as someone who wears glasses, incredibly difficult to use. Yeah, I, just, I just wish I had discovered uh, Russian rangefinder sooner. I probably would have uh, taken to rangefinders a lot more than I have. Yeah, well, I have held a Leica 3. Um, they're nice to hold. Uh, I'm not sure I'd want to live with one for a yeah. long period of time. Yeah. Not when you can have a Fed. <laughs> exactly, and you're not breaking the bank. No, no. I, I, I was. You can still get them new. I mean, they're new old stock, but I was poking on eBay before I got this one, and... Um, out of the Ukraine, you can still get in their factory box early feds. So they're going to be one of the earlier models. So I think they'll have the uh, the funnier time, the uh, you know the 2050 uh, one 200 shutter speeds, which which do my head in. Um, I I have I have a. Uh... I have a um, large format lens, my 203 Ektar, that is in those timings. 
Yeah, I have a, a speed graphic with an old Optar, and it's the same way. Yeah. Um, I'm always, when I'm trying to meter for that lens, I'm always, oh, yes, you're off by a bit. And now I have to, I, I don't like thinking too hard when I'm taking pictures. It takes me out of the, uh, of the process a bit. And having the old style shutter speeds, it's a bit foreign to my thinking. It just it sort of interrupt my flow a bit. I'm sure I'll get used to it over time. Um, yeah. But at least for a handheld camera where you're trying to be fast and fluid, the modern shutter speeds, I think, is the advent is the advantageous to me. Yeah. The real trick is one one hundredth of a second is your one one twenty-fifth. One fiftieth is one sixtieth. You shoot a film with enough forgiveness factor built in and a good developer and you're fine. I suppose that's true. I'm a little bit I think it's my my you know technical background. I, I really want the things to line up nicely. <laughs> I, the, the columns have to be aligned or I, I don't feel right about it. But no, I, you are correct. You are correct. But it, it's a habit. Hey, nothing wrong with habits. No, at least the good ones. <laughs> yeah. Well, Andrew, that, that pretty much wraps it up. So thank you so much for uh, joining us today. You're welcome. And yeah, folks, um, hear it from, a, from someone relatively new. You can't go wrong with a, uh, a solid Russian camera. At the very least, you could fend off bears with it. Hey, and in Canada, that's a real threat sometimes. Yes, when there are all those sleds running around the town. <laughs> Have a good one, Andrew. Thank you. Have a good one. And that wraps it up for today's episode. I again want to thank Stephen, Tony, and Andrew for appearing on the show today. And go and check out the episode notes. I've included a video that Stephen recently produced, a one-on-one on Soviet cameras, and well worth a watch if you're looking to get into shooting these excellent cameras. I've also included links to all three of my guest social media accounts, so be a good comrade and give them likes and follows. And last but not least, don't let communists be a dirty word, especially in regards to their cameras. I'm Alex Lokes. Have a great week. <laughs>